Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. Today we're responding to episode 304 of Star Trek Discovery, titled Forget Me Not. In this episode, we visit the Trill homeworld and travel to the Caves of Makala, where Adira Tall and Michael Burnham retrieve the memories of the Tall symbiont. Usually, my responses to Star Trek Discovery episodes are broken down into three distinct segments, think, feel, and question. But today, all three are kinda interrelated, interwoven with one another, which is kind of perfect, given the theme of this response, which you're about to find out. So if we start with think, well, this episode is all about the Trill, a humanoid species in Star Trek, and their symbionts, worm-like creatures that co-inhabit their bodies and carry the memories from one Trill host to the next. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today, symbionts in real-life biology. Believe it or not, we have symbionts in our very own bodies. By some estimates, there are as many as 10 times the number of bacterial cells in our bodies as there are human cells. Some recent studies have revised this number down to 3 to 1 or even 1 to 1, but even if it's just a 1 to 1 ratio, that's a lot. For every cell that carries your human DNA, there's at least one cell in your body that does not. Now, it's worth mentioning that bacterial cells are far smaller than human cells. So by mass, you are still mostly human, even if by number, you're not. But still, I think that this realization should cause everyone to have an identity crisis. Seriously, if you've never stopped to think about what it means to have as many, if not more, bacterial cells than human cells in your body, well, here's your chance. In short, what it means is that we literally cannot function without our microbiomes. In our guts, microbes help us digest our food, breaking it down into smaller parts and synthesizing key nutrients like vitamins for us. This is part of a mutualistic arrangement. That's the scientific term for a relationship between organisms where both benefit. We provide our microbes with safety and shelter and a steady supply of food, and they provide us with crucial metabolic services. But in recent years, scientists have discovered that our microscopic symbionts do much more than just that. Changes in our gut microbiomes can have serious consequences for our health. For instance, when scientists transplanted the gut microbiota of obese mice into non-obese mice, the non-obese mice gained significant weight despite being fed the same diet. And it's not just our physical health, but our mental health too. Studies have shown that our gut microbiomes may interface with central nervous system functions and regulate things like anxiety, depression, and memory performance. 
This occurs through affecting the balance of steroids and hormones in our bodies, which winds up changing the concentrations of proteins involved in cell signaling, among other things. A lot of details still need to be worked out in this burgeoning field, but there are indications that even Parkinson's disease and autism are associated with changes in the gut microbiome. Now in Star Trek, the Trill symbionts, which are not microbes but macroscopic forms, store neurological memories of their hosts across lifetimes. Now, while nothing like this occurs for us through our own microscopic endosymbionts, it's not that giant of a leap from reality. We just discussed how our gut microbiomes can influence mental faculties, including memory performance. Furthermore, we know that we inherit our initial complement of microbes from our mothers at birth. In fact, there are nutrients in human breast milk that cannot be metabolized by our own cells and are apparently intended solely to nourish the initial microbial ecosystems that human infants carry. So while I don't carry memories of previous people in my gut, I do carry the descendants of the microbes that shared the bodies of my ancestors, and those microbes are probably playing a non-negligible role in regulating my mood and mental state at this very moment. Now, we are, of course, not the only creatures on this planet with symbionts. In fact, you'd be pretty hard-pressed to find an animal that doesn't. Some animals actually obtain their symbionts during the course of their lifetimes, similar to how the trill pick up their symbionts when they are ready for the joining. Bobtail squids are my favorite example of this. When they're young, bobtail squids will pick up bacteria called Vibrio fisheri. These bacteria are bioluminescent and allow the squids to match the glow of moonlight hiding their silhouettes from predators lurking below them. So this is essentially a biological cloaking device, which is just brilliant. Now, bobtail squids are born sterile. To get the ability to glow, young squids have to use tiny little hairs called cilia to funnel microbes from their environment towards a sticky, mucousy trap. When enough of the light-producing bacteria are ensnared, the squid produces antibacterial agents that kill everything but their bioluminescent partners. The mucus then disappears, and so do the cilia, and soon the bacteria are engulfed into an organ all for themselves, which will become the squid's light organ. Another fantastic example of this is the tube worms that live at hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean. These tube worms contain gamma proteobacteria, which are specialists at metabolizing the icky hydrogen sulfide that spews out of the volcanic vents. In this way, the microbes harness the chemical energy from the vents, creating a friendlier form of energy for their worm hosts. Like the bobtail squid, the acquisition of microbes actually changes the morphology of the host. A larval tube worm creates a mucus coat to catch and retain bacteria. Then, once the microbes settle into that larval worm, the worm forms what's called a trophosome, a cavernous organ that becomes the home for the bacteria. 
So in both the case of the bobtail squid and the tube worm, acquiring a microbiome actually changes the layout of those animals' body plans. In other words, new organs form in response to the bacteria's arrival. These examples highlight just how co-evolved animal life is with bacterial life here on Earth. So a few minutes ago, I asked you to reflect on the crisis of identity caused by the realization that we are, by number, mostly bacterial life forms. For me, there are two main paradigm shifts. First, our concept of self has to be radically redefined. You are not just one human being, but a network, an entire ecosystem of life built by a web of interactions between the trillions of human cells in your body and the trillions of bacterial cells in your body too. The information that makes us what we are is not limited to our human genome, vast as it may be, but also contains the genomes of a diverse array of microorganisms who share our space, who may as well be considered us. Now, I don't mean to sound Borgish here, but we literally are a collective. For the longest time, we had no idea about our collective nature. But thanks to modern science, the field of microbiology in particular, our perspective is now changing. Second, the evolution of life is often framed as the survival of the fittest. Like it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there, and only the strongest, slyest, and sexiest stand the chance of surviving. But what our symbionts teach us, and what mutualistic interactions throughout biology in general teach us, is that there is a fair degree of cooperation involved in shaping living systems as well. To couch evolution as the result of competition is not necessarily false, but it's not nearly the whole picture either. When we work together, incredible new abilities emerge, including greater system stability and adaptability. If there's a lesson to be learned here, it's just how much we rely on each other and our microscopic companions. If you want to learn more about the gut microbiome, I highly suggest a book called I Contain Multitudes by award-winning science writer Ed Yong. Much of the information that I just described came from that book. I read it last year, and it completely blew my mind. So back to Star Trek now and the Discovery episode that we're responding to. I thought it was just utterly poetic how the writers chose the B-plot of this episode to be the mental health of the crew of the Discovery. In Forget-Me-Not, we see Saru trying to de-stress his incredibly overworked and anxious crew. Saru organizes a dinner for the senior staff, but frayed nerves and utter exhaustion eventually degrade people's patience to the point that the crew storms off one by one without finishing their meals. Well, at least the wine was good.
So here comes my feel for this episode. I felt emotionally stressed watching the crew of the Discovery falling apart at the dinner table. I'm just so invested in their friendships, especially Stamets and Tilly's mentor-mentee relationship. And seeing Stamets berate Tilly for her innovative spore drive interface idea was honestly painful to watch. I'm just glad they made up at the end. Tilly, everything that I've done since I've been on this ship would have been impossible without you. I've failed to let you know that. I always knew it. I failed to tell you. I apologize. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I've been wondering, what did you learn in your sport of research? Oh, nothing. I was looking at dark matter and energy coefficients with the map, and it works. A new interface using dark matter would be revolutionary. We should keep talking about it. Okay. So to brainstorm new R&R activities, Saru consults the main computer, into which the sphere data from season two has integrated. I thought this was a genius move on the part of the writers to reveal to us the evolution of the sphere data in this episode. Because one could say that the sphere data is now a cybernetic symbiont of the USS Discovery, which beautifully parallels the main narrative of this episode. And like all good mutualistic symbionts, the sphere data needs to take care of its host. It needs to take care of the crew. So whether it's the sphere data suggesting movie night, the Tal symbiont wrapped around Adira's heart to protect it, or little bacteria in your gut turning your pizza into molecular morsels that you can metabolize, we all need to thank our symbionts for the hard work, the often overlooked work that they do. So the sphere data becoming Discovery's symbiont leads right into my question for today's episode, which is, to what degree are we creating a symbiotic relationship with technology right now? Is your smartphone in your pocket or maybe even in your hand? Do you have a smart speaker in your home? Do people acquire luminescent screens the way bobtail squids acquire luminescent bacteria? Like all my questions, I don't purport to have answers. They're just food for thought. So enjoy chewing on that one until next week's episode of Star Trek Discovery, which I'm sure will be equally thought-provoking. Until then, see you out there.